And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Greetings and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. We're more than... Oh, 30 days, 28 days away from the election? And advocates in eight states are abuzz with anticipation about voting on adult-use marijuana measures on their ballots. While legalization would bring regular users of illicit marijuana out of the shadows and put illegal street vendors out of business, there are far more important reasons for us to pass new marijuana laws. Economics would be one. The billions of dollars would be diverted back from the black market cartels to support education, health care, and other social programs. Millions of jobs would be created in industries that support marijuana businesses from security and marketing, insurance to interior design, construction to hospitality. Legalization will save taxpayers millions of dollars spent in law enforcement, judicial process, and incarcerating people for minor drug offenses. Which leads me to another important reason. Social justice, as we know, prohibition unfairly targets minority youth. They're most likely to be arrested, imprisoned for nonviolent drug offenses compared to non-minority offenders. Another important reason is access. Medical marijuana laws are notoriously restrictive. Not all medical conditions that could be relieved during using medical cannabis are included in qualifying illnesses. But perhaps the most important reason has to do with awareness and acceptance. This is most obvious when it comes to the medical profession. Despite the millions of individuals who now have legal access to medical marijuana, licensed doctors and healthcare practitioners, especially those tied to large hospitals, refuse to even discuss marijuana as a viable option for people who need it to treat qualifying conditions and even other conditions. This is a personal issue, and we have definitely got a lot of experience speaking with patients all over the country who've run into this problem. Passing state legalization measures will pave the way for scientific research that will in turn legitimize medical use of marijuana and help doctors overcome their own reluctance to explore it as a viable treatment for their patients. And that's something our guest today knows a lot about. But before we get started, Nate Nichols has our Marijuana Minute update with a few insights about this. What do you have, Nate? Thank you, Snowden. Today I'm here to talk about opioid addiction. Opioid addiction and abuse is becoming a global public health problem. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, between 26 and 36 million people abuse opiates worldwide. More than 2.1 million Americans are believed to abuse prescription opiates. It's estimated that more than 100 million people suffer from chronic pain in the United States. The number of opioid prescriptions written has increased dramatically from 76 million in 1991 to more than 200 million in 2012. In 2010, there were 13,600 unintentional deaths from opioid pain relievers. Opiates pose a significant danger in terms of impairment while driving. Between 2001 and 2011, there was a tripling in the prevalence of positive opioid tests among drivers who died within one hour of a crash. Non-medical abuse of prescription opioids is increasing as well. In 2012, over 5% of the U.S. population aged 12 or older used opioid pain relievers non-medicinally. Unsurprisingly, emergency room visits related to the non-medical use of opiates have increased as well. 
ER admissions related to non-medical opioid use have gone from 145,000 in 2004 to more than 300,000 in 2008. Overdose deaths due to prescription opiate pain relievers have more than tripled in the past 20 years, accounting for more than 16,500 deaths in the United States in 2010. Opioid abuse is believed to be contributing to the uptick in heroin use in the United States as well. The use of heroin has nearly doubled from 2005 to 2012, with 380,000 users jumping to more than 670,000. That is just astonishing, isn't it? And I'm really excited to introduce our guest because I have a feeling that he'll uh, be able to bear witness to a lot of that. Absolutely. He is a board-certified doctor specializing in emergency medicine. He's now serving as the medical co-director of the Wounded Hyperbaric Center, director of the Primary Stroke Center, and attending emergency physician at Armstrong Memorial Hospital near Pittsburgh. Please meet Dr. Brian Donner. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Snowden. Happy to be with you guys. So those were some pretty astonishing facts um, from emergencies that involved overdoses of opioids. And I'm really wondering what your thoughts are on transitioning out of opioids and, and educating medical practitioners about the healing benefits of cannabis instead. Sure. I, I have some pretty strong feelings, particularly with regard to the the opiates. And I, I thought that was a real uh, appropriate intro. Um, as, as a practicing emergency physician, we see this literally every single day. I can't go through a shift where I do not see uh, an opiate overdose, um, whether it's heroin, some of uh, uh, oxycodone, any of the other opiates. But literally, it's it's a daily uh, occurrence, and it's it kills people. It really does, and we see it every day. And it kills young people who had families, who have children, and it's it's absolutely devastating. And it's an epidemic in our country now, and there's there, there really hasn't been a good alternative. So I think that is one of the that that's one of the reasons that medical cannabis and medical marijuana I think should be so appealing to uh, to many physicians, to all physicians actually, is that this could potentially present an alternative to to a real danger uh, in our country, something that that's killing people every single day. Yeah, that the FDA. Uh, former FDA director was saying really amounts to the number one epidemic in the United States lately. Absolutely. And 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 like I said, I, I see this sort of on an everyday level. And when you see these things day in and day out, um, it really it really hits home. And and one of the great things is that many doctors now are are feel that way and they understand and they're they're starting to try to do what what they can to help try to curb this epidemic. But it can't uh, it's not just stop. There needs to be an alternative to, to treat a lot of these people as well. So that's that's sort of the conundrum that, that we're in as a, as a medical community right now and I think as a country. What do you think's really contributed to the increasing uh, prescription of opiates? It seems like, you know, people have always had pain, but this is kind of a recent phenomenon of doctors viewing this as kind of the primary means to treating this problem. Absolutely. It's a good question. And I, I don't know if there's a single answer to this. Um, I think that, that one of the things that you see is that uh, healthcare and medicine now has really become a, a customer service type uh, type environment. That That's really how physicians and providers are, are graded on certain scores and things. So I, I have no doubt that there's often been, often been a uh, pressure to do that. Um, I, I think on the same token, the 
people really sort of this came around before people understood the the severity of what was happening. Um, and even I can tell you as an emergency physician, oftentimes I might uh, prescribe a small amount of a narcotic pain medication for an acute condition. Uh, even that, it, it, you start to look in retrospect and say, was this the right thing to do? I think also whenever it comes out now that you see you see a lot of the research on, on particularly when you're talking about opiates, that, that shows that they're not appropriate for, for chronic pain. They don't work. There's there's big, big side, side effects and consequences to that. So I think it, it was a multifactorial reason. I don't think you can point your finger to, to one thing in specific. Yeah, I I often wonder too what the incentives are for uh, doctors to rely on on those pharmaceuticals because I know that there have been uh, some controversies around the commissions that are paid to doctors to prescribe certain medications. Is that something that you've seen to be prevalent in emergency medicine as well, or no? Yeah, to be honest, no. In, in emergency medicine that, that I've been over, God, almost the last 10 years, that fortunately, that is not one of the, the motivating factors. Uh, emergency medicine is a, a rather unique beast uh, in that it's really an acute setting. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously, just like anything else, everybody, you, you hear stories. I, you know, I, I would hope with the narcotics at this point that, that that's not a true influence on doctors. Um, I, you know, I can say that the physicians that I work with now have, are, are really paying attention, which is good. And that, that, that's, that's what we need to be doing. So, um, and it's a start, but we have, we have a long way to go. And we're just, just at the beginning of this process, too. Yeah, well, I, one of the things that I didn't mention in my introduction of you is that you're the owner of Compassionate Care Centers, and I know that you're presenting workshops to educate medical practitioners about um, using cannabis to heal certain conditions and that sort of thing. And um, I'd like to hear about that in just a minute, but first I just wanted to ask you, um, aside from the doctors that you are actually educating who who obviously have expressed interest in learning about this, um, what's your experience in terms of the majority of physicians, um, especially at the hospital level, who who are really reluctant to even talk to patients about um, using cannabis to treat their illnesses? Yes, no, no, I think you hit the nail on the head when you when you talked uh, spoke about that earlier. There, there is a there is a reluctance, and and I think from at least speaking from personally and from a physician's standpoint. The reluctance can be natural when when something can maybe be pushed towards you, but yet you don't have a comfortable understanding or education level of that yet. And I think that's been one of the the problems that we've seen is that that the providers, the doctors, the, the the nurse practitioners, everybody, they really haven't been provided with an educational base to support this. Um, they haven't you know had a time to be incorporated into some of the research that we have. And I think there's a natural fear of of the unknown. And what I've found in my my personal experience is that when when I, I talk to physicians and you explain to them the endocannabinoid system and, and the true true physiology and and, and and concept behind it that they're they're much more open to that um, and I think that should be that's that should be a big focus and that's just one of the reasons that we had founded compassionate certification centers and have partnered with some of the people we have because that's what we want to be able to provide the education and the support to the providers that they need it's really doctors and uh, are are 
plays such a key role in this equation. Um, and really, they're, they're the gatekeepers for this. And, and it's important for them to be educated on this, whether you believe in it, whether you don't, whether you're on the fence. Your patients are going to be asking you, and, and I feel personally that you, you have an obligation to be able to give your, give your patients an answer that, that's reasonable and educated, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, it does. You know, I think one of the other barriers really is is the legality because obviously because it's a federally illegal substance, they're not able to, as licensed doctors, write a prescription per se for it. So I wonder if that really is is playing a role too. What do you think? Yeah, there's no question that, that doctors are concerned and, and nervous about that. And again, I, I think it comes to more uh, of an educational standpoint you know it also makes it very difficult as a as a physician when when you operate okay your state regulations say one thing but yet I write prescriptions that fall under my DEA license which is a federal organization uh, so you could be you could be playing by your state's rules but still be federally in violation and and doctors to lose your DEA license is a is a is a big big deal one of the things that i always talk to physicians about and i make it i think it makes it, them think a little bit different about it is in my opinion and i don't i don't have the numbers to, to uh, off the top of my head to give them to you but you're much more likely to get uh, in trouble or lose your DEA license secondary to opiate prescriptions um, than you would be at this point with medical cannabis. Um, so I think that's an important uh, important point that I try to I try to tell talk to about the doctors that I speak with. Yeah, well, I, I think that that would be a really good point, especially since the omnibus budget this year um, pro, uh, prevented any monies uh, being spent on enforcing um, the federal law in those states where legalization has taken place. I believe. And I, I would think that that would sort of pass along to the medical profession too, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I, the, at least the way I interpret that and, and the, the way the legal folks that I've spoken with interpret that is that, listen, if, as long as you are, are you, you are playing by your state's rules and, and, and their guidelines um, that the federal government will, will not pursue any type of prosecution for a medical cannabis or medical marijuana standpoint. So yes, I think that's a, I think that's a big, big deal to be able to, to tell doctors that to give them confidence and, and to know that there's some support out there. Yeah. How, how receptive do you find patients to be to this idea? Cause I know we've been talking a lot about doctors and kind of their perception surrounding it, but is this something you feel like patients are asking for, or is it something where the doctor really has to start the conversation? In my experience, it's mostly the patients that that really are initiating this. Um, there's, I, I think, there's obviously cases where physicians may, in certain conditions, there's no doubt about that, especially the conditions that have been recalcitrant to standard medical therapies. But overall, from what I have seen, it's really the the patients that are typically uh, initiating this discussion with their provider, and in often cases, the the the, the the patient may have more information than the, the provider does um, just because it's something that they haven't uh, been experienced with. So again, you know, it comes back to the education. But yes, I think most of the push, in my opinion, has been from the patient standpoint. Yeah. I, I interviewed a doctor uh, about four weeks ago who's a pain specialist and was really quite astonished to learn that the endocannabinoid system is not something that's studied in medical school or at least wasn't until recently and only in a few places now that I understand. 
Yeah, and I was just going to say, not yet. I think that was so. You know, when I was in medical school, it wasn't even. Uh, I mean, we we never even so much as brushed about it. Um, I know still there's there's a fair amount of doctors that, you know, you ask them what do they know about the endocannabinoid system, and their eyes get sort of big. Um, so yeah, it's not as of yet. It's not it's not a standard part of of medical practice. And I think you know part of that it, it can be it can be understood because I things especially in medicine there's there's things are slow to change. And I am one of the reasons I personally got, got interested in, in medical marijuana and cannabis was through research. I'm, I'm, I'm a real big clinical uh, researcher and an advocate. Um, and I think there's no doubt that, that from a clinical standpoint, as a medical community, we need to see more research. We desperately need more research because I think we've probably just scratched the surface in this. Um, and when you, when, you can, when you can really show that to, to physicians, I think that's when they that not only will they believe it, but then they'll start to incorporate it and integrate it into their practice. Yeah, well, like I said in the beginning, it'll legitimize it. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I'm hoping that these state laws will really start to open up the doors. Um, when you, how long ago was it that you first learned about this and wanted to start researching it? God, I would say probably about... Four to five years ago, I really, that's when it really had, had piqued my interest. And after I got more involved in the clinical research that I did, and I reviewed some of the, the, the research that was available on medical care, cannabis and marijuana, that it really had, that's whenever I, it piqued my, my curiosity more. You know, also at that time, that's, I, I became much more aware of, of the movement that was happening across our country. Um, since that time, I, I think it's, it's obvious that this is something that that it's it's gaining momentum. It's not going to go away, and and I think that's why it's important for us as a medical community to say, okay, listen, rather than push this off, I think it's important that we embrace this and we help we help do this the right way. That that's what this is. This is potentially a therapy that could help millions and millions of people. Um, that we need to explore further, um, and we need to do right now. Yeah, absolutely. Can you share some of the clinical studies that you've that you've conducted? Yeah, I, absolutely. My main focus in clinical research ha, has been through uh, wound care and hyperbaric medicine, um, in specific. And I got there's been. I could name studies for you here for the next half an hour, but it would probably be pretty boring. But those are the that's really where my focus has been in conjunction with some other folks. We've also started to do some uh, basic research um, in in concussion as well, um, and I'm currently looking into doing. Uh, we're, we're working on a research project that's going to look at uh, the the effects of concussion and, and long term brain injury, and possibly using CBD and, and hyperbaric medicine uh, as a treatment option. So. I think it's probably, I, I don't want to name to you sort of my, I guess my portfolio here, but my most of my research thus far, the overwhelming majority has been in wound care and hyperbaric medicine uh, with some other stuff sprinkled in. Yeah, I know that there's a big push for the NFL to start treating CTE um, injuries, encephalopathy and, and that sort of thing with cannabis. Also, um, will the studies that you're you're thinking about doing, will they involve anything having to do with the NFL? 
As a matter of fact, they will. So we're, you know, we're, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, but we're, we're putting on a very large uh, convention uh, that, that's related to medical marijuana and real in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's really going to have a large focus on the medical aspect of it, more so than the business and anything else. And and uh, one of the speakers that, um, that we're working with, uh, a great guy, uh, Marvin Washington, a former NFL player, he and I have been in discussions and we're currently working that he has, he has a lot of uh, friends and former NFL players. There's some wrestlers as well who are suffering from some, some long-term consequences of traumatic brain injury. So I'm trying to work with them and our organizations are trying to work together to, to really uh, initiate this and then hopefully have some, some research like that that we could present uh, or, or speak about at, at our event in April. Yeah, I, we actually spoke with Marvin on our live broadcast on Sunday and um, about maybe a month and a half ago, too, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really um, has some wonderful ideas about how to approach the NFL, and he's doing some amazing work. He'll be out here in Phoenix, actually, uh, this coming weekend at the Southwest Cannabis Conference and Expo. But I, I think that um, it's important to get the word out about your convention in Pittsburgh because it is so heavily focused on the medical field and, and educating practitioners. And so- yes, exactly. And that, that's really what we wanted to, to focus on Snowden. When we were, when we had initiated our company and we were looking into having this event and, and we did some research and went to other events, we really noticed that, that, and it's okay, but that there was a real large focus on the business aspect of this. And, and we support that and are in full agreement as well. But, from our standpoint, in particular, our company's standpoint, we want to focus on uh, on the the medical, the clinical aspects. So we to to focus on providers and to and to focus on patients. And this event that we're having in Pittsburgh, we've really geared it towards that. Um, we've we've partnered with a company called uh, the Answer Page, who's led by uh, Dr. Stephen Korn, um, who is just uh, as smart as could be. Um, and in, their company provides the mandated um, online medical marijuana education for the states of New York and Florida when physicians want to get uh, um, credentialed to certify patients. So we've partnered with the answer page and we're putting on a 22 and a half um, AMA category one CME credit event there um, that's really going to be an introduction to to uh, medical cannabis and marijuana and the endocannabinoid system. And we think it'll be a, a great way for, for providers and not only providers, but patients too, to really learn the meat and potatoes about this and, and then give them some time to develop that before it's initiated into clinical practice in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I was really happy to hear that it would be accredited CME, um, continuing medical education credit for professionals, because that, again, is just one more level of legitimacy to what it is that you're doing. And the fact that the AMA is sanctioning that is, you know, I say kudos to you for that. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. And that's, like I said, Dr. Korn and the answer page, they're, they're fantastic as well. Um, they're supported by the Massachusetts Medical Society. So you're talking about organizations really, really at the highest level and, and are showing some support for medical cannabis and marijuana. And, and that's, that's a big deal. Yeah. How, how open to these kind of issues do you think the, the AMA is? 
Oh boy, that's a that's a tough question for for me to to answer. I would I guess I would put it this way. I think they're going to be forced to be open and to be listening. As I said before, this is I think this is something that's real and it's here and it's now. Um, and there's enough evidence out there to at the very least tell us, look, we should we should be pursuing this further, and we really need to look into this into this further as well. So I, I think they're going to be um, um, forced into into being. More, more receptive to this type of thing. I think all, all of the organizations will be, and I think that's that's a good thing. And that's being, that's really being motivated by by the movement of, of the patients and on a grassroots level more so that, than the doctors and the physicians. So that's oftentimes a very powerful thing. I would think so. And what's interesting about that is that the AMA was one of the last to hear that medical marijuana was being taken off the table as a medical treatment. Uh, when Congress got together and sort of secretly um, initiated the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act and all of that, there was, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that that was, a, that was sort of a corporate conspiracy for a lot of reasons, but the AMA was the last to know about it, and they couldn't believe it when it happened. And so I'm not surprised that they would actually jump on board for the benefit of patients, even though they're an organization that represents physicians. I think you're... Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things about Pennsylvania, too, I think it's very interesting and in that we talk about this a lot in our organization is really Pennsylvania was sort of the tipping point when you look at it for states. So now greater than 50 percent of, of the U.S. population will have access to some form uh, of medical marijuana or cannabis. So when you look at that from a number standpoint, that 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 majority, I think it forces people to pay attention. Um, and that's 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 a good thing in this situation. Practically speaking, I think it's even higher than that. On one of our last shows, we were talking about, you know, when you look at census data, almost 80% of people live in an area now where they could potentially get access to cannabis as medicine. Even better. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. Wow. Well, um, I'm I'm really interested to um, hear more as you develop your your speaker lineup and all of that for the conference. There was um, something else I wanted to mention about that. How focused are you on on inviting administrators of hospitals? Because, and there's a reason I ask that. It seems that a lot of the doctors that I have spoken to recently, and I, I mentioned in my introduction that this issue is very personal to me, um, but I've had a lot of opportunity to speak with a lot of different doctors connected with giant organizations and VA hospitals, to find out their willingness to um, not prescribe dangerous pharmaceuticals such as Haldol and Ativan and instead allow us to pursue a treatment with medical cannabis. And nearly every single one of them have said to me, look, you know, I would talk to you about this, but I just simply can't. I'm not allowed to. And it has nothing to do with the law. It has to do with their hospital institution barring them from even discussing it with patients. And so it it seems to me that your conference would be an excellent opportunity to invite hospital um, policymakers, if you will, to learn about why this is so important to, you know, let their doctors open up and start talking about this. 
yes, I could I couldn't have said it better myself, Snowden. And and you're right. We you know, it's it's interesting though. Over the last I can even say over the last few weeks, I I've sat down and met with a few administrators from uh, some of the the regional very large institutions, and they 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 seem to have been more open. And it was a lot. It was a lot of uh, it was a lot of sort of educational from from my end, and then asking a lot of questions from their end. But I think. I think the fact that they're asking the questions now, I'm seeing that is is good. And yes, I think that's it's everybody everybody involved in the healthcare system and and who's going to be making decisions um, needs to be involved in this. And I think that's I think whenever you can really show the medical utility of it, and and, and when you show that there's some research and support behind it, and you can show that listen, you're not out on out on an island when you're doing this. Um, I think you're going to see people people open up. Um, it's always an interesting phenomenon to me too. I, I think there's just just a dramatic difference when you look at the West Coast and the East Coast, right? Um, so, I, and I think that 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 my hope is uh, being an East Coast guy and along the Eastern Seaboard that we're able to use sort of the process that some of the other states and everyone else has gone through already. To, 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 to help avoid some of the bumps in the road that we've seen in the past so that that way when you get a program running up and it's being efficient it can be good it makes it it makes it difficult uh, you know I, from our from an organizational level you know we deal with doctors in basically any states that that that, that this is uh, legal and where it's running and the, the laws are so different in every state um, it makes it difficult for providers to to, to get a good grasp on things so I, I think there's sort of some hurdles that we're going to have to get through but um as i always say to my partner that the cat's out of the bag and 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 the ball is rolling at this point and i think a lot of these larger institutions some of the governmental institutions i i think there's uh, no different than the ama they're they're going to be put in a position where they're forced to address this and i think that's largely going to be patient driven more than anything else yeah, I, I would think so. And it's, you know, it's awesome that the states are actually, you know, doing the trial and error with all of this in advance of the federal law, because, you know, quite frankly, I think rescheduling marijuana schedule two isn't really going to do enough in the long term um, to to create the kind of access that people need and that doctors need and the the removal of the stigma behind it and all of that. So. I don't know. It's it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see what happens this election season. I I know that there are a lot of people waiting with bated breath for the outcome of this, but <laughs> yeah. Um, but if people, you know, people are interested. I can tell you so as far as the, you know, Dr. Corn and I were talking, and you know, his organization. They've been approached by both parties, by both uh, you know Trump and and Clinton, really to 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 be educated and to and to find out about this too. So even at the highest levels people are taking notice. Um, there's no there's no question about it. What, yeah. what do you think the changes and kind of the shift towards um, adult use marijuana means for traditional medical marijuana? Do you think that'll be a good thing for medical marijuana or is that does that cloud the discussion in your mind? I think there's a little bit of both on this on the answer to this one. I think it clouds it a little bit from the from the clinical provider standpoint. Whenever it follows so closely, um, that that I think 
it gives people defense when they say, well, look, listen, you're using it medically just to be a gateway to recreational use. Uh, people ask all the time about our business model. Well, what happens whenever it's recreation or whenever it goes recreational? I say nothing happens. People still wouldn't, will need this as sort of as a medical therapeutic intervention. Um, and we've just started to really learn about how this is going to work. And, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, things are going to be dramatically different. So even though um, there's, you know, even I, I personally believe that even if it was legal recreationally everywhere, that there's still going to be a medical utility in it. Um, and that's, I, I think that's a point that, that, that shouldn't be lost. Yeah, and it seems that it would only enhance the access for people too, because the medical programs, you know, while they're great to, you know, give some people access that need it, um, a lot of people can't afford it. And, and, and we talked about on our last show with uh, with Liz, uh, the owner of the certification clinic here in Phoenix. A lot of people are too intimidated to even participate in that right. because they feel like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not severely ill. I might not need the access to it as a medicine. And so I'm hopeful that it might encourage some people that will use it medically to come out of the shadows and try it. Yeah, yeah. Because yep. that does seem to be one of the biggest barriers, you know, to to getting treatment. Is that it really does. And Snowden, you said something that you, I just want to comment about sort of the, about descheduling, right? Mm-hmm. The, and if we, we did go down schedule, I think the one thing that would really open up would be research on just a very, an extensive grand level, right? And that's that's what's going to be needed to be done at some point. It's I mean, you're talking and you're not talking about I know everybody. I'm as much as as anyone else. I like to hear a feel good story. You can. But we get to a point where we have to prove all this stuff without a shadow of a doubt. And I think that's but if we get to the point where we can deschedule. I think that's that's the big door that that gets opened up, at least in my opinion. That that from the research to do becomes comes much more um, realistic and and widespread. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with that. My one fear, though, with um, pertaining to which level they decide to reschedule it to, if they don't deschedule it altogether, um, is that making it schedule two relegates it to that pharmaceutical level, which to me means that there might be a lot of meddling in the big pharmaceutical industry, which to me could potentially take the purity out of it and and take the non, um, what's the word I'm looking for, non-economic incentive to create drugs out of something that is just a, a beautifully organic substance that can heal multiple things. Does that make sense? It does a hundred percent. And I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think there's no doubt that as of right now, that's, that's why the, the big, big pharma hasn't become involved because of where it is on a, on a federal level. So yes, I, I, with you whenever you change the scheduling parameters of it, it, it absolutely could be uh, a little bit of a, a Pandora's box. You know, I think it's one of those things that that's, that's likely going to happen down the road, right? So I, mm-hmm. I think as, as the movement takes place and, and, and things expand more, that, that will be something that in the future, everyone will have to be not only uh, aware of, but, but ready for. Yeah. And Nate, I think you may know this better than I would. It's, it's, the rumors that have been circulating about rescheduling it to a Schedule 2 substance, that's been going on for, what, three years? 
Definitely. It's come up a couple of times yeah. now and, and the DEA again this year kind of, you know, passed on their uh, opportunity to do anything and they said they're going to wait another year and investigate more. So, yeah. And I just think it's really interesting. I just wonder what is going on in the minds of people at the DEA level who are making those decisions because, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly there's a medical use. So, well, and it's interesting too when you put that you put that statement in conjunction what, with what President Obama said that basically so okay we're not going to change the 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 schedule but on the other hand we're gonna we're gonna be more loose about the regulations and the parameters for research that's going to be done and that mm-hmm. type of thing so I, it, it's sort of you're sending a mixed message in that way mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion which can be confusing to people. I I was talking with a friend of mine who's pretty well plugged into this world, too, and they were talking about the changes in terms of one of the most significant was that they supposedly are going to allow more universities to cultivate medical marijuana or or marijuana for research purposes. And that's a big deal because a lot of the access to marijuana right now through federally approved studies is very low-quality marijuana. And this person was saying that basically they feel like it's a lot of sort of lip service of they said, well, we are going to allow these other institutions to do this, but then they have been very slow in implementing the permits and things like that. So they can say on a public level, oh, we're, we're not standing in the way of this anymore. But the reality is, is that they're still, you know, dragging their feet. <laughs> I had a conversation with someone who said that, you know, every time they need to transport plants for testing, just um, for testing of purity and that sort of thing. Um, Ryan, who we were talking uh, to at C4 Laboratories, we actually had him on the show a while back, he said that it, it, there's, there's such a double-edged sword to doing that because every time someone has to pick up um, samples and take them to the lab, they, if they do not have or hold their own medical marijuana card, they're breaking the law just to drive it across town. And... It, that, that's just a, a small barrier for, you know, ensuring safety in product. And there's no law around here that actually permits someone to carry a sample for testing from, from a dispensary or from a grow house to a laboratory for testing. It's just, it's ludicrous, really, when you think about it. So. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and this is what the, those. These are some of the things. Just like you bring up, Snow, these are some of the things that sometimes, as a, as a doctor, right, it gives you pause. You're like, well, listen, what's going? You know, it seems things are changing all the time. What's going on? That the, the you know, there's loopholes. There's some of the regulations are unclear. Very, they're they're gray. So, yeah, you know, and sometimes it when you're on the when you're on the uh, I guess I'll say the back end of that. That's why I think that could be just like you hit on before the legal process, all that. I think that's something that intrinsically makes providers nervous. Yeah, of course. And but I think that this is um, yet again, as as Nate asked you a little bit ago, you know, um, legalization could enhance the um, the medical access and the testing and and making the product safe and all of that. It it just makes sense um, for these adult use laws to pass just to give everybody access to handle it more efficiently and safely. I agree. Yeah. How, how political of an issue do you think this is for doctors? Because to me, it seems like part of the reason they might want to stay out of it is because it seems politically controversial. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, most doctors or, or physicians that I know 
I haven't seen them, uh, you know, bend their uh, practice or, or the way they practice from a political standpoint as much. I think obviously physicians can be, inst- you know, uh, um, uh, their their institution can have a great effect on on what they're going to be doing. But I think on on your everyday, uh, you know, physician standpoint, I really I, I'm a real big believer. I know I've probably said it ten times, but I think it's just a la- more of a lack of education and understanding than than really the the political aspect. Uh, now I can tell you this: obviously, there's no, you know, not everybody a doctor would be maybe as outspoken as I am about this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but and I think there's a lot of doctors who have sort of been sitting back in the sidelines saying, "All right, let's let's see how things play out." And and I think that's obvious how they're playing out now, right? Um, but I, I don't think the political aspect of it, at least from my personal experience, has been dramatic in their decision making process. Yeah. Well. I, I think it's a snowball effect that, you know, as more and more people learn about it from people like you, they'll start educating their peers about it as well. And eventually, you know, the the entire medical community will be on board with this and put pressure maybe on the federal government. Who knows? That's right. And this is, as a, as a physician, I, to me, this is very exciting. This is something that that happens, <coughs> excuse me, once once in the history of our country, and to, to be able to have a uh, be a part of it and be intimately involved, and to be able to sort of ha- help shape the landscape that's going to be in the future, I, I think that's a tremendously exciting thing, um, and I think it's a responsibility as the as a medical community that we have as well. Yeah, no, you do have a great opportunity to guide the knowledge base, you know, and and help guide um, perceptions and. I think it's just amazing what you're doing, honestly. And, you know, it's it's particularly exciting to me anytime I can talk to a physician about advocacy because, like I said, it's a personal issue for me and I've been up against so many barriers um, dealing with a very close family member. And it's it's troubling, you know, how, how little access or how how unwilling so many are to... Um, uh, considering this a viable option. It's just, yeah, it's crazy. And I think times will get better, Snowden. I, I really do. And I think as the, as doctors understand and accept more and there's more of a push from the patient standpoint, I, I think things will change because, you know, it, look, the majority of doctors are going to be, you know, they're going to be open-minded in this, especially whenever they see, they see true medical utility and understand it from a medical standpoint. I think that will really, really change, change the game for doctors. So I think things will, will perk up in the future, at least I hope. Yeah. So what, what's the one takeaway message that you would send out um, to peers in the medical community now? From what, do you, what would you like them to know most, especially in states where the um, ballot measures pose legalization for adult use? Yeah, absolutely. I would say the biggest thing that I say to everybody and what I promote, whether you're for, against, or in the middle, is that there's an obligation to get educated and to understand and to and to really uh, find out the answers about this. And there are resources that are out there that are available and that there's a responsibility as providers that we have to our patients to try to understand this and be educated on the best level we can. So the time to do that is right now. And that's my, that's my, I guess my biggest point to, um, to take home to, from a provider standpoint, I would say. And I think that holds true to, 
from a patient standpoint as well to to really do some homework, to do some research, to find out about this, so that you can have you can have a good uh, fulfilling conversation with your doctor, um, and it doesn't have to be standoffish. You don't have to be scared. So the, my big point is to really now is the time to educate. And whether you're doing that yourself or you need somebody else to assist you, that's what I that's what I really want clinicians and providers to do. Yeah. How, how much do you rely on some of the research that's coming out of Israel and Canada, for example, where they're really quite advanced in terms of um, their acceptance and use of medical marijuana? Yeah, I think without question, when you look at the body of research, the the best research has been done internationally, which makes sense, like you, uh, like you had said. Um, I think it's I, I think it's fascinating, and I think it's just what we need, uh, you know, to talk about on a, on a big picture um, standpoint without getting into the details of specific studies and things like that. But every research study that 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 comes on that comes out, I think, is important because it's building a body of work. Um, and research, like like anything else, it needs to be critiqued, and you need to look at it, and the appropriate people need to look at it. Um, you know, numbers say one thing, but 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 you can put numbers together to sometimes say another. Um, and it's important for the research to be not only looked at as, hey, this is a very good thing, but from a critical eye as well, is this what we need? And then to take that and build off of it in the future. That's what that's what I think is is going to be important that we do is, hey, listen, this was we had the start of something here. This could be great. This needs to get taken further and on a, on a bigger level. Yeah, I would think so. Anything to add, Nate? I I'm just curious, um, kind of what you think will make research uh, more possible. You know, I, I know we've talked a little bit about it, but it just seems to me like there's all this interest surrounding it. But it just seems like a very uh, a high hurdle to get over right now. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, I mean, so part of the big thing is that state by state, it varies, right? And that's that makes things from a research uh, uh, perspective very, very difficult and, and a slippery uh, slope. So it goes back to what, you know, uh, one of the big things I see, obviously, that, that would help research would be um, on a federal level changing the schedule. I think also now, too, it, the, as more people as more people, more clinicians, researchers, providers understand how, uh, you know, the endocannabinoid system and how things work, I think that in itself is going to fuel research. You know, I mean, there's, there's other people out there like me who are just going to say they're, they're intrinsically researchers. That's what they like to do. And they're going to say, look, here was an idea before. Let's take this to the next level. Um, there's so many different ways to study this. There's so many body systems and disease processes that we haven't even talked about yet. Um, and I think that in itself is going to help drive the research. And the other thing too, again, is whenever people ask for it, when people, you know, the patients, whenever, whenever people want, want something and they, you know, essentially demand it, it's going to, it's going to force us to do that. And that's a, and that's a good thing. So I think it'll be, I think it'll be multifactorial. And as, as, as time moves on and things spread, I think you'll see uh, more and more research being, being done, which, you know, sometimes too much research can be a problem too. Um, who do you know, who do you believe people come out with and you're, and you're going to see both sides of the fence. Not everything is going to be, Hey, um, you know, this is the studies we thought we were going to do. It's turned out positive. There's going to be folks probably on the other end of that, uh, on that spectrum as well. So it's, it's something that we'll have to address as time moves on so it seems to me like with uh like your 
your conference and these different kinds of events, it's a lot of people that are kind of actively interested in learning more about this. How do you reach people that aren't believers, that aren't seeking this knowledge out? How do you approach them? Yeah, that's and I mean that's what really I, when I talk to my partner, that's what we consider our job. You know, there's the the people that that initially want to be there and are interested. Those aren't they're the people that typically find us, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, whenever we whenever we uh, approach approach folks out uh, about this, and it was like I talked about the other day with the the hospital administrators, it's focusing on the educational standpoint. And the bottom line that I tell people is this: that you need this is something that as a, as a provider, as a physician, that you need to understand it's not going away it's here it's real your patients are going to be asking you about it and like i said before as a as a, as a clinician you have an obligation to be able to give them an, an educated opinion and even potentially guide a, a treatment plan so that's really what i hang my hat on is that as providers uh i think we you know that 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 it's essentially mandated you know this that that we should this is something that we should know about we should want to know about and we should want to know about it for our patient's sake and safety Right. Well, I I think that um, you've given people a lot to think about <laughs> in, in this in this hour here. I'm I'm really glad that you've joined us, and I'm really anxious to follow your progress. And um, as it gets closer to the conference that you have uh, coming up, it's in April next year. Um, I'm really anxious to see who your speakers will be and how the medical community embraces that kind of education it's really amazing so yeah it's exciting and i I appreciate the opportunity uh, that you guys gave to have me on it was it was a pleasure to be able to speak with you and you're both and everybody all your listeners is cordially invited in in april to uh to our event in pittsburgh we think it's going to be fantastic and um hopefully it'll lead the way for for stuff in the future too so thank you Oh, well, yeah, thank you. And um, we'll definitely look into that for sure. And and you might see one of us there <laughs> at that time. So um, the other thing I'd like to stay in touch with you about are your research studies, too, because we're, we're actually going to be opening up our website to clinical studies and white papers where people who are just curious can go and get some information about um, certain conditions and and the efficacy of medical marijuana to treat their conditions and just kind of create a research hub for people. So if you're open to it, I'd love to um, maybe republish some of your studies and, and things keep in touch with you about things you're working on. Oh, absolutely. It would be my pleasure. And I think that's great that you guys are doing that. And I'll absolutely be involved. You just let me know and, and you'll have the, the resources of our company too to help with that. I think that's that's tremendous. You guys are doing that. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And um, I think that's it unless you have anything else to add, Nate. No, I don't think so. It's been very informative. It has been. And thank you. Thank you so, so much. So, um, to all of you listening today, thank you so much. And um, we extend our, our thanks to you, Dr. Brian Donner. If you're interested in what he's doing, you can visit his website, um, the Compassionate Care Center's website, which is www.compassionatecertificationcenters.com. And while you're there, you can uh, look into the conference, which takes place April 21st and 22nd next year at the Convention Center in Pittsburgh. 
So again, that's CompassionateCertificationCenters.com. So if you'd like to know more about this topic or any of our other amazing guests on the Cannabis Reporter radio show, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. I say thank you very much to our very own Nate Nichols for your insights today and to our producer, Wendy, from Star Worldwide Networks and, of course, their entire team as well for making us shine. Thank you for listening once again. Tune in next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. And until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, go to the polls, and make it a great day.